0: This podcast is proudly supported by CareerFacts. The team at CareerFacts is just as passionate about connecting people with the right course as you are. As Australia's number one careers and course search site, CareerFacts attracts over 12 million visitors a year and have partnered with over 50 leading providers. Want to increase your student enrolments? Head to CareerFacts.com.au your partner in student acquisition. From Clare Field and Associates, I'm Clare and I'm pleased that you could join me for the very first episode of my new podcast, What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. On this episode, we'll be unpacking the election result and what it means for the sector and getting the views of key representatives from the TAFE sector, private providers, and the apprenticeship network. But first, a quick health tip and the answer to the question, why didn't I invite anyone from the university sector onto this first episode? And I bet when you downloaded this podcast, you didn't think you'd get health advice before we jumped into better or higher education. Um, I just wanted to say... You'll hear my voice doing all sorts of things in this podcast, and I apologise for that in advance. I've been battling the flu uh, this week, so the health tip is please don't delay. I was two days late in getting my um, flu shot, um, and it's knocked me around for at least a week. Um, whatever you do, uh, don't delay. Go and get yours. Um, health tips over and now let's get back to, uh, what's happening in the sector. Um, it's no snub to the universities that I didn't invite them on. I'd be very keen to, to chat on future episodes about what's happening, uh, from their perspective in the sector. Um, but when you look at the election result, uh, for better or worse for, for the universities, it is business as usual. Um, no changes to uh, university funding, uh, which is quite a contrast to what the, the Labor opposition had proposed. They were looking at the return of the demand-driven funding system um, and instead there's uh, some additional places being funded at specific universities and I have to say when I briefly look at the mostly regional universities in what were, maybe still are, uh, marginal electorates. So, the universities, I imagine, are going to be spending most of the next three years putting forward the case for why they need uh, a return to the, the demand-driven funding system um, and or uh, a different way of, of accessing additional funds for, for places. Uh, the government has policies in place um, and, uh, haven't foreshadowed any changes to them, uh, for how they will reintroduce some growth funding. And I think the, the important thing for all of us, whether you're in, um, higher ed or, or vet, uh, to be looking at is the introduction of specific performance measures for universities to access that, uh, growth funding. The measures themselves are still being developed and agreed. And I think it is, something for us to think about because it it strikes me as interesting that the higher education sector through the QUILT website actually has the most uh, transparent provider level data available and it's not in any way linked to funding at the moment or or performance. Um, It certainly soon will be and by contrast in the vet sector we have incredibly detailed uh, provider level data it is linked to funding but only for one very modest component of the overall uh, funding regime and that is the the vet student loan scheme so we'll park that one for now it's something i think to keep an eye on how uh, how is this government going to look at uh, funding and performance measures and provider level transparency and I think that poses uh, some challenges for, for VET as well as as higher ed. Um, just rounding off the higher ed uh, sector and, and what it looks like uh, post-election, the other two key issues I think we need to keep an eye on are coming out of two reviews that are still yet to conclude. The first is the AQF review and I'm particularly interested in how the reviewers land their recommendations on the treatment of micro-credentials. We're pretty comfortable with those in the VET sector as units of competency but if you're trying to think to to peg them to a particular AQF level, what does that mean? Uh, What does it mean for students, for funding and for regulation? Very clever person posed a question to me last week, which was, could you be a HEP, a higher education provider uh, accredited by TEQSA, if you only offer micro-credentials? I think that's a really interesting, challenging uh, question. And then the second uh, review to keep an eye on is the review of the Higher Education Provider Category Standards. Basically that's, amongst other questions, asking do we need greater specificity in relation to different types of higher education providers and if so, should we fund and regulate them differently? So that's it as I look across the higher education sector. Uh, no doubt there'll be more to say down the track. Um, the VET sector has uh, greater... Or had a greater, um, awareness and recognition, both in the pre-election budget and, uh, through the campaign. Not much, but some. Um, and so you'll cast your mind back. We had a couple of things happen. One was the, the budget and, uh, at the same timing, the release of the Stephen Joyce expert review of the vet sector. And if you haven't read it, I think it's a, very well thought through um, and well written uh, piece of work. It's actually, um, I don't mean this to sound rude to any party parties, but it's a much better piece of work than I had thought a former minister might deliver. Um It's really... Uh, a very good read and I think there's quite a lot more in it uh, than the recommendations that the government has has picked up so far so that's on the Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, website if you haven't uh, found a copy of it yet and want to have a bit of a read. So the government in the budget committed to 80,000 extra apprenticeship places and you'll recall at the time immediately it looked like there were billions of dollars raining down on the on the vet sector. And when people sort of added it all up, actually, mostly that wasn't new money. The rain that was coming down on us was money that had been washed around from um, other programs uh, and been reallocated. And that's true in relation to those extra apprenticeship places. That money's coming predominantly from funding that the Victorian and Queensland governments had been offered through the Skilling Australians Fund and had chosen not to accept. Uh, So that money is now being reallocated as incentives for employers and for some apprentices. So 80,000 extra places there. An expansion of the regional apprenticeship wage subsidy scheme. We'll see some um, extra places, not all that many, but some extra places there. An expansion of the PATH internship scheme and the transition to work service for young unemployed people. And both of those have a modest training component. And then there's some vet reform initiatives that fall out of the Joyce Review, which were also included in that um, pre-election budget. And they are the development of a National Skills Commission. So that's potentially trying to look at um more national approaches to vet policy and vet funding. Not quite sure how the states and territories feel about that. Uh, the development of a national careers institute the government's trying to grapple with, as those of us who've been in the sector for a long time, have. Uh, how do you fully engage people in the career opportunities that that VET leads to? And we'll see if this Careers Institute can deliver on that. Um, and then something that sounds a bit bureaucratic but might actually give the current training package model and paradigm a bit of a shake-up. And that is the pilot of two new what are called skills organisations. And I have to admit, when I first read this, I went, oh, Two new SSOs, oh yeah, that's not all that exciting. But actually, read properly, it's not skills service organisations, these are alternatives and they're modelled on the Kiwi approach, The, the how the New Zealanders do it in terms of bringing um, employers, unions and other um, industry representatives directly into the process of developing Uh, standards and qualifications and even allowing them some funding uh, that they can directly purchase some training themselves. So there'll be one in the health sector and one looking at digital skills and the aim is to pilot this alternative approach and see if it can make some headway um, outside of the, the current fairly cumbersome uh, training package arrangements that uh, that we have and that's it and so I think a bit like the the university and higher education sector the lack of significant, Uh, growth funding for the sector is going to put strains on both public and private providers. Um, I think we'll see those that have CRICOS approval looking to further increase their international student numbers. Um, And we know we're still waiting, obviously, on the uh, ASQA, Strategic Review of the International Education Sector. That's due next month. Uh, So it's not clear how we'll look to... To continue to grow the sector, um, and and whether uh, we're going to end up with the the skilled workforce that we need, particularly as you know the robots are coming. Check out you know uh, pretty much any media these days, and there's a few articles on my website as well about the robots and how they're taking over. Um, so if the world of work is changing, and we need to upskill and reskill people. Uh, to help them transition through those changes to their work. And the VET sector having been stripped of funding by Commonwealth and states over a number of years, uh, do we have the, the funding base... To, to do what uh, the economy um, and uh, and the community needs. I guess those are the questions that uh, the government uh, faces as they head, you know, back to Canberra uh, to uh, to put in place uh, the policies such as they are that have been announced. Now, to discuss the election result and what it all means is Alexis Watt, CEO of the School of Health at Open Colleges and chair of what was until today ACPET and is now ITECA. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute, Alexis. But first, you and I have known each other for a number of years. Um, but can I ask you to introduce yourself to listeners who may not know you and your background?
1: Sure, and thanks, Claire, for the opportunity to have a chat with you about uh, the mixed bag that is VET. Um, my background is I've been in the VET system for around about 20 years. Uh started as an hourly paid instructor at TAFE in South Australia, delivering training in hospitality and tourism, and have variously done a number of roles across the system uh, over the years. Uh, mostly in the health and community services side, um, both in, uh, RTOs, domestic and CRICOS, as well as independent higher ed provider and dual sector provider as well. Um, and got involved with ACPET, uh, probably getting on for about 10 years ago. Um, and have had various, um, advisory and, and steering group um, gigs along the way um, around funding around regulation uh, around program design uh, training package management uh, you, you name it i've kind of been involved in most of it
0: so you're a perfect man for us to talk to um thank you well, uh, i i knew your background was pretty extensive but i hadn't actually um, you filled in a few gaps for for me as well so before we unpack the the mixed bag as you described it in the, the election uh, result and and the impact for the sector. Um, fill mm. us in on ACT today as we're recording um, has um, completed um, its evolution into this new peak body with the acronym ITECA. Can you tell us um, a bit more about that and, and what it means in terms of the work that the uh, the peak body will do and and the providers that you represent?
1: Sure. Um, to ACPET, is, as you know, of course, Claire, for your time with that organisation, has been around for some uh, 26, 27 years um, and has played a, a quite a crucial role as a voice for the independent sector uh, within tertiary education. And what the, uh, the board over the last few years has uh, identified is a need for um, that model and ACPET as a vehicle to evolve into something uh, a little more than a, a sort of federated member representative body. Uh, and so today marks the uh, the public transformation if you will uh, through to what we've um, we've determined is the Independent Tertiary Education Council Australia We're establishing a clearer focus on independent higher ed vet uh, as two distinct but um, aligned elements of tertiary education uh, and almost coming back to what you might think of as first principles, right? providing co- high-quality service to members, uh, providing leadership and uh, a strong voice to government uh, of all forms uh, and all political persuasions, that represents the value that independent providers bring to tertiary education on a national scale, but also the contribution Australia makes globally uh, in, in its exports uh, and skills development offshore. Uh, so, I'm to...
0: oh, sorry.
1: You one other element in there is um, policy and advocacy uh, uh, rises up uh, alongside research and data so we can provide more compelling information at the fingertips of members to communicate the value proposition of independent providers, which is considerable uh, and is often lost in the statistical analysis that goes on around the sector.
0: So that's a really good background for us uh, to plunge into what the um, election result means. Um, Earlier in the podcast, I went through and Summarise the the government's policy announcements. Uh, so I won't uh, run through them uh, with you. You're, you're familiar with them. What did you make yep. of them, and and are they what's needed for the sector?
1: Um, isn't, to be frank, I'm uh, pretty underwhelmed. Um, what we heard going into the election um, was a range of uh, slightly uh, sort of tit for tat promises between coalition government and Labor, uh, and none of which really, in my view, delivered a sense of inspiration for where the sector might go. Uh, and now here we stand on the other side of the election and uh, my view hasn't shifted much, to be honest, uh, from that perception of the last um, couple of months. Um, there's a really marked lack of uh valuation is how i describe it of vet as uh, a sector of our economy uh, as an, an engine room of economic contribution productivity social value uh human capital development uh, you, you know, the list is quite long of of the output of the vet system and the value it generates uh but the, the I guess the scope and the nature and certainly the dollar value of investment proposed, uh, is, it really feels like tinkering at the edges. And many, uh, would say, and many of iTech's members and, and colleagues and, and potentially people you speak with as well, Claire, will be saying the sector is desperately in need of redesign and reform and well beyond, uh, you know, fairly minor items around the edges. We're talking right at the core uh, of the way it's engineered and the way it's funded, the way it's regulated, the way it's pitched and presented to uh, consumers, to students, parents, employers, governments, uh, uh, offshore. Uh, The whole thing needs a a real investment of energy and funding, uh, and neither of which... I've seen in the policy platform that the coalition has brought.
0: So that brings us to a, a very good question that I was going well, timely question. Um, we'll see if it was a good one. Um, so as we're recording this, we don't yet know uh, the makeup of the new ministry. But you know, let's do a hypothetical. If you were going, if you were chosen as our next skills minister. You've you've identified a number of problems, and I, I think you're right. They are um, subject to a lot of discussion in the sector. So, Alexis Watt, as the new skills minister uh, in, in the new government, what changes would you be looking to bring in?
1: One of the key factors that the system is struggling with right now is um, at a product level, the training products, uh, whilst structurally logical, have become uh, virtually unwieldy. Uh, They simply don't keep pace with the nature or the rate of change in a lot of sectors of the economy. So I would be looking to accelerate a substantial reform to training packages as uh, a key foundation of the system. Uh, I maintain a belief that competency-based training is valuable and has a role to play, so I wouldn't move, uh, attempt to move away from those foundations, but the design of training packages, the mechanism by which they're managed, um, developed, updated, uh, and regulated, um, be looking to make some uh, fairly significant changes there. Funding. There's a serious, serious problem in the way that VET is funded, particularly relative to the precedent system in secondary schools and what you might consider to be the um, follow-on system in the higher ed. Uh, Of those three, VET is the only one that's gone backwards in the last 10 years. Uh, Every single other sector has gone forwards by 40 or 50% in real-terms funding. VET has gone backwards. And I just find that staggering. Uh, So I'd be looking to establish uh, a mechanism by which VET could operate on a higher level of funding and a more equitable level, uh, primarily to support improved participation and um, a better basis of access. Um, I appreciate and respect the fact that states maintain a level of control over how that money is invested. Uh, but I would be having a very uh, frank conversation with state ministers about whether or not their policies and strategies were, in fact, supporting a truly mobile and national workforce, or were they deeply parochial? Um,
0: you got you got a lot to do in that uh, in that new uh, portfolio role.
1: Hey, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Um, um, you, I never I, said I, this would
1: be done quickly.
0: No, indeed. Indeed. The, well, the path to reform. Pressure. That's right. Um, Alexis, you've given us an awful lot uh, to think about. Um, I really thank you very much for uh, taking the time uh, to share your thoughts. I'm sure people will be um, energised by your your ideas and, and your commitment to the sector um, and look forward to perhaps having you on again for a chat down the track to see how things are going with uh, with iChecker, uh, maybe get you and Troy along uh, to, to fill us in with how it's going.
1: Yeah, I'd be very happy to do that and uh, thanks, Claire, for the opportunity. Um, we're in a system that does nothing more complex than, than uh, tries to change people's lives. Right. And yeah,
0: nothing, nothing Nothing more complex, you're right, yes. It's a great pleasure now to have Diane Dayhue from the National Apprentice Employment Network join us. Um, Di, it'd be great if you could start off by giving us a bit of a background about your career in the sector.
2: I really fell into the vocational education and um, training market uh, really as a result of my uh, uh, frustration of um, seeing a really easy pathway for people to um, get into decent careers. Um, And my background was in education but also in the visual arts area and I was a university um, academic as well for, for quite some time. I enjoyed that so much but I would worry about my graduates and I saw this fabulous job uh, going which was uh, looking for a person that had sales background, education and arts uh, background and that was actually to uh, work in a group training company and so that was my step into uh, into the VET um, world. I've worked in uh, group training functions in the property services sector. I did diversify from from the group training area for a while and uh, I worked at the ABC. Uh, when I was at the ABC, I had the uh, for good fortune of being appointed the chair of the arts training New South Wales um, ITAB. We did have an RTO at the ABC. We had an enterprise-based RTO. And so the management and leadership programs that I would set up would often align to uh, accredited um, uh, qualifications as well. So there was still that relationship. And then after the ABC, I worked at the Construction and Property Services Industry Skills Council. The Skills Council um, experience was uh, really Exciting, and it gave me another um, a, another viewpoint of the vet um, sector. So I, I've worked in you know various capacities in vet. It's uh, now the time for me to come back to the group training fold, and I've been uh, with the National Apprentice Employment Network uh, since uh, the end of last
0: year. Fantastic. I don't know how you've managed to cram, cram all that into. Um, what, uh, what, what you, you seem to have done like two lifetimes or two careers in, in what would take mere mortals, uh, only one. So, so thank you for that. And obviously your, your background and experiences. Um is really valuable in in your role, but also to us in terms of unpacking uh, the government's election policies. Um, and apprenticeships are clearly a key uh, area of focus for the government. I wanted to ask, do you think that the incentives they've announced will be enough to attract the extra apprentices that they're targeting?
2: Uh, Look, um, Claire, I think um, any incentives that um, are on offer to assist um, the employment of apprentices and to uh, stimulate the market and stimulate um, the uh, intent of employers to take on apprentices is uh, worthwhile. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that's always looked upon favourably, uh, from the employer perspective. And, and I note too that there's incentives there directly for apprentices as well, which is, uh, is, uh, greatly valued as well. This is the thing that, uh, that group training organisations often, um, say to me, and that is, uh, we would love to be at the table, um, uh, you know, with, uh, ministers and, uh, with the department, when they're actually considering, uh, the, the package of incentives that are going to work and going to stimulate uh, the The change of behavior for employers certainly uh, news of incentives and additional incentives are always welcome uh, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't certainly it 's great news that there's additional uh, incentives uh, incentive payments um, for app- apprentices and uh, and for uh, eligible employers as well that 's fantastic news. We do have some um, feedback to provide on. The regional apprentice wage subsidy. We think it's fantastic that it's being extended because that went fabulously well. Um, however, there is a quota for group training organisations in terms of uh, how much of that uh, subsidy we we can uh, access, and that puts certain limits, particularly on the group training organisations that are in the communities that are really that really operate as the lifeblood of communities, and uh, sometimes you know they, they've been. Weird with that uh, group training organisation for 10 or so years, relying on them to support them and to provide that additional support and HR support and so on to find an apprentice and. Or, you know, uh, help to supervise them in the field and direct them to training and, uh, you know, just provide that additional, um, wraparound service that they can't get to as a small business. Um, but, uh, they're finding themselves in competition if that, uh, they find that, um, well, sorry, the group training organisation has run out of their quota of the, the regional incentive and they, they will consider then just taking on future trainees and apprentices, um, directly rather than using the group training service.
0: That's very interesting because I guess what you're saying is, um, yes, it's seen from Canberra. These initiatives look good mm. on paper and, and obviously have, have a positive mm. effect. Um, but sometimes how they play out in regions, like you'd like to think it would be a good mm. thing, uh, that a local regional employer might look to directly engage an apprentice. Mm. But if, other parts of the regions then suffer, and they uh, run into difficulties. It, it has a destabilising effect overall. So, looking for ways to encourage both group training organisations and employers, should they wish to, uh, to be accessing uh, support to, to take on apprentices, seems seems like a, a very positive thing. So, it'll be interesting to see how how your feedback sees those those policies may be adjusted and, and tweaked in in the years ahead Um, I wanted to ask you because you are so close to to the ground and and you know what really is happening in terms of work and training through the the apprenticeship network um what do you hear from your members about the barriers to the take-up of apprenticeships and what more needs to be done
2: well, uh, look, it, it, it's, there's no silver, silver bullet. Uh, it is complex and it's dynamic as, as time changes, but there, there are some recurring themes. And, um, uh, just to, yeah, you know, I guess this is just to stretch out some of our discussion about the incentive payments that are available to employers to, uh, engage apprentices that are over, um, the age of 21. It's wonderful to have the incentives there, but sometimes they're just not enough to win over the, um, the support of a host employer. Of course, the group training organisations, uh, on the whole, um, pass back, uh, incentives to the host employer to encourage them to take on trainees and apprentices. In terms of um, what's available for mature age apprentices, uh, sometimes that incentive is just not enough in in relation to the the award wage that a mature age apprentice um, uh, needs to be paid. Often we have these amazing candidates that are applying for apprenticeships, but they have to compete with the the lower cost of taking on a younger apprentice. The award wage um, escalates and the modern, wage, modern award kicks in, particularly for the elect- electrical apprentices. I know. This This is a really big issue that some of our group training organisations talk to me about Quite a bit. Also, um, getting the candidates as well, uh, and getting the timely candidates from school to turn to an apprenticeship as an option or a traineeship as an option for their career pathway. It's excellent to see that the um, feedback that has been provided through through the Joyce review that um, clearly we're not doing enough in terms of uh, putting vet there as a as an equal pathway an equal option in comparison to university. It's just the the changing uh, nature of young people as well and their choices. The, the apprenticeship uh, period and contract is uh, something that they need to commit to. It's a certain wage level that they need to commit to for a number of years and it's contract. We're finding that young people uh, like to be quite uh, in charge of their lives and their careers. So there's many challenges and, and I think the challenges will continue and that's why it's important that we keep having a look at uh, at the vet at the vet system and the models of
0: apprenticeships terrific thank you that's a lot to think about now my final question is we've seen that um a new ministry has been announced and uh we've got a new minister for uh vet and apprenticeships uh steve irons uh, but if uh if prime minister morrison hadn't tapped uh mr irons on the on the shoulder and said you know steve you're the you're the new vet minister if he tapped you on the shoulder <laughs> And given you the portfolio, um, what what changes would you be looking to put in place over the next three years?
2: Look, uh, if I was the vet minister, uh, and what an exciting opportunity! I think uh, to be in that position, it, it's a fabulous privilege, and uh, and it, it's an opportunity to make a real difference. Uh, I think um, that it's a, a a period of optimism that the government's going into. Uh, certainly, it's it's great to have a government that uh, with a budget that's in surplus. It's all very positive, and there's some um, amazing uh, initiatives that that have been announced that uh, are very welcome to the sector. Um, I think there's anticipation in the Joyce review. There would be great interest of what the minister will be doing and 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 um, how they will be responding to the review, ensuring that. Uh, that I get to know the major players of the the vet system, and certainly I, I would be speaking to the National Apprentice Employment Network as quickly as I could to talk to the <laughs> the uh, largest employer of apprentices uh, and trainees uh, uh, across Australia. Because if anyone's going to tell me um, how the vet system is running, surely it, it must be the um, the largest employer of um, the apprentice and, tra- and trainee network. So engaging all the yes, engaging great. all the major players and rebuilding new confidence in vet. I think
0: terrific. Thank you very much for making the time um, available. You've given us uh, a lot to to think about. Um, wish you and your members um, all the best in the next three years with uh, all of that um, apprenticeship activity, uh, and uh, be keen to to chat to you down the track and see how it's Thank going. Thank Claire. Lovely to talk to you. to have Craig Robertson, Head of TAFE Directors Australia, joining me on the line. Craig, welcome. Thank Uh, you. Now, it's been been more than a decade uh, since you and I worked together on national vet reform and you've had a number of roles in the vet sector uh, before that and uh, and of course since. So for listeners, can you fill us in on the different roles that you've had within the sector before you, you came to the TDA role?
3: Sure. Uh, essentially, just at the point that ANTA was closing as a Commonwealth public servant, I was inside the Department of Federal Department of Education. And so I went and worked in VET national policy at that point. So that was around about 2004, 2005. So worked in national policy roles for a good, um, probably 10 years from that point. Uh, and then about 2015, uh, I became the Deputy Secretary in the Department of Education and Training in Victoria. Um, that was under the Andrews government and principally it was looking at the implementation of skills first. Then at the end of that, which was about a, just under a two year stint, um, I joined as the CEO of TAFE Directors Australia in April 2000. And 17. At that point, TDA was set up in Sydney. Uh, part of the appointment process was to set up in, in Canberra. So that was part of my task.
0: Okay. So, Craig, thank you for, for that. You've obviously seen the, the sector then from, from a number of different, um, perspectives. And so we very much, uh, welcome your, your insights and thoughts as, as well as the views of the, the TAFE sector. So looking at the the election result that we've just had, I've been through and summarised the the government's policies for the sector and obviously, you know, you're across all all the details of them. Um, Can you tell me what you think about them and are they what the sector needs?
3: Okay. So certainly it is good from the current government's viewpoint that they took some time out to conduct a review uh, by Stephen Joyce, uh, a New Zealander who was able to come in, I guess, with a fresh set of eyes. And I think it's important that we do take our time to look at some of the comments that he has made. Then, of course, what the government's done is implemented a number of those recommendations within their budget um, measures. I guess the two points I'd make in respect of those is, firstly, it's putting a stronger call on industry uh, to play a role not only in terms of the requirements of qualifications, but also a financial contribution. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But secondly, they are calling out for uh, stronger coordination across industry and with Commonwealth, uh, with Commonwealth agencies, but also primarily states and territories. And I think that's an important um, uh, measure that they need to take. The challenge, of course, is that you could argue that Commonwealth state relations have been a bit uh, fractured over the last little while. Um, and to implement that measure by virtue of taking training funding away from Victoria and Queensland is a real issue about how to genuinely get collaboration and cooperation. So I would hope that um new minister or an established minister in the role. Um, Morrison as Prime Minister, they'd look at re-establishing their financial relationship with states and territories so things could get back on an even keel and then start looking at some of those structural reforms that the uh, budget measures have involved.
0: Great, thank you. Now, you've um, spoken a few times uh, then about uh, a national approach and obviously – uh, one of the specific initiatives, uh, as you say, uh, that that had funding in the pre-election budget, uh, was towards the development of a national skills commission. Um, do you think that kind of national body that um, is is needed? And if so, what kind of improvements do you think it could bring?
3: So clearly, if we think about vocational education and training, about making sure that there is uh, skilled workers for jobs of today, but also emerging jobs, but also making sure that we have a flexible training system that can make sure that people who are changing jobs can readily pick up um, skills so they can transition. Uh, I think it is important that we do have that um, skills commission as proposed. The question is, is it a skills commission in terms of forecasting labour market demand? Is it about bringing together the qualification requirements of a particular industry, or in fact, is it a purchaser? Uh, I think as a f- good first step, they should be looking at what's the nature of the change in the economy, and then going from that uh, point onwards. I am a little bit concerned that in public policy terms, we are putting a lot of uh, onus back onto industry to drive the change. Where in fact we do know that it's industry that's going through change itself. Um, and we know that there are public policy failures in, um, within industry. They're concerned about making a pro, turning a profit, um, and looking after the here and now. I'm not quite sure that on their own they are well placed to be able to put um a spin on the future directions of vocational education and training. We think providers, particularly my members of course, TAFE should have a stronger role in that so, in that area.
0: And that was a point I think um a uh, former colleague of yours and mine, Terry Moran, made in uh, essentially in in his recent review of the the TAFE South Australia system that we've kind of designed a, a sector that doesn't really have education at the heart of it, even though it is an education uh, sector. So that then my musing takes me to to my <laughs> last question, which which is that. Uh, You've just come back recently from a a study tour with some of your partners and uh, uh, members um, through Canada and the US, and I wonder um, what you saw there that you think the Australian VET system uh, could be thinking about or or learning from.
3: Uh, Firstly, from the Canadian uh, experience, it is very clear there, coming from the federal government, that interestingly in Canada doesn't really have a function in respect of uh, TVET, that they have put some money available, made some money available for what they call applied research. What does that mean? That is, in fact, um, the community colleges or polytechnics um, in Canada engaging with their local businesses to help them drive innovation and change. And we saw some great examples of that at Niagara uh College uh, as well as at uh, George Brown College in in Toronto and I think that's a really important thing because if we if Australia is going to innovate, particularly at the firm level and particularly at the small and medium enterprise level, there needs to be a mechanism for technology transfer and innovation and we think TAFEs can play a key key role in that. The second observation about the community college model in uh, America is the strong focus on underpinning knowledge. Um, and so it would be the case that they would encourage people to study for two years uh, so they make sure that their um, broad basic skills in literacy, numeracy um, and the like are, are, are sound, and then they add some uh, technical skills to that. And I think we need in Australia to be able to come back and make sure that we have that sort of offer here in Australia somehow
0: terrific thank you I recall I was at a, a community conferences college in the, the US a couple of years ago and one of the other things uh, I think their focus on research I saw some of that the other thing that that struck me was their use of data to improve their own performance as an educational um, institution and I I wonder did did you see some of that and was that part of the the discussions that you that you had as well
3: uh, we didn't see too much of that, apart from there's a strong performance regime, uh, because they're all governed by um, a board, of course, uh, yeah. they have strong reporting to their to their boards. The other thing I should add is apprenticeship uh, is the real flavour through America at the moment. But, of course, uh, you can talk to three or four different people and you get four or five different views and models about what apprenticeship is. So the general sense is, though, that there are a number of employers saying we're not quite getting um, the skills that we require out of the community college sector, so why don't we try um, the apprenticeship model? In some respects, that ends up being a cadetship model. Sometimes it's uh, work-integrated learning. Uh, But nevertheless, there is a bit to reflect a bit on the community college model, that there's a bit of a reflection that it doesn't quite meet the needs of industry. So maybe somewhere between the Australian model and the North American model, we could find something that would uh, work for modern Australia.
0: Fantastic. Well, what a great uh, note to finish on. Thank you so much for for making the time available for the uh, the call and uh, wish you um, all the best and look forward to perhaps having you on um, another episode down the track.
3: Easy. Thanks, Claire. My pleasure.
0: And that's almost a wrap. I know it's normal to put website links in the show notes for a podcast, uh, which I have done, uh, but I'm conscious that there were a lot of reports and websites mentioned in this episode, um, and to help hopefully make it a bit easier for you to find them, I've also included the details in an article in the news section of my website, uh, that's clarefield.com.au. Now, it was quite a long episode for a first episode, but hopefully it's had uh, lots of information for you to think about. Uh, I certainly um, uh, got a lot out of the, the conversations that I had with the, the guests on this episode, and I very much welcome uh, your ideas and thoughts. Uh, what do you think? Do, you, do we need major reform? Uh, will business as usual be enough for the sector? If you want to share your ideas, you'll find me on Twitter at Field and Associates. I'm on LinkedIn, and you can also find Field and Associates on Facebook. Uh, I Before I finish, I need to thank a few people who helped me pull all of this together. Uh, you know who you are. You've been extraordinary, and I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you. Lastly, don't forget to rate and review us uh, wherever you get your podcast from. It does help people find the show um, and it also tells me what you want more of. Um, if you subscribe to, to the show in your podcast feed, it will automatically um, load the next episode uh, as soon as I've got it available for you. Uh, and I'm aiming to do that uh, towards the end of next month, unless something huge happens in the sector that we need to discuss before then. Thank you again for joining me for this first episode of What Now? What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector.